I was just told that I was promised a chocolate bar that wasn't delivered yet. You can't. You can't fulfill the obligation of shalachmanus with kind words. Um, right, you also can't fulfill it with just one chocolate. It also has to be on Also, yeah. So, well, this you know. is a really shelf. So, kind of, it's not for him, so you can't fulfill it at all. <laughs> exactly. Is someone able to not necessarily give out the Bishop Maras, like before Purim, be like, oh no, it's raining or something like that, but they like had the intention of being the person afterwards? You're like, yeah, you know, it was sitting in front of Purim. You run through the rain, my rock. Can you, like, if, so, if somebody is like, um, you know, diabetic and they need a shot of insulin, and Whoa. it's outside. And you're like, well, I had the intention to get them the insulin. It was right by the door. It was right there. I just didn't want to go out because it was raining. And like, you know. Can you give shakmas to someone who it's not heard? But I mean, like it's, it's, a discussion. it's a discussion. It's a, it's a complex discussion. Is there halacha? Different, different people. Different okay. So yesterday we spoke about Mitzrayim. That was so uplifting. I felt so free. Expansive. So today we're going to speak about leaving Mitzrayim. Is this part two for yesterday? It is part two for yesterday. However, what, what's, what's I missed that? it, so I don't know what's happening. There's, there's Spotify. Everything I say is recorded for posterity. Okay. Fortunately, no, you won't be lost at all. And maybe you should leave anyway, but... Um, so, no, today we're going to talk about leaving Mitzrayim. So yesterday we spoke about Mitzrayim, and today we're going to talk about leaving Mitzrayim. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to use the names of the holiday of Pesach as the guide for how one leaves Mitzrayim. Because after all, Pesach is the holiday of leaving Mitzrayim. So the name of the holiday will kind of be an indication of how that happens. Yes? Make sense? Okay. So, what is the holiday of Pesach called? Chagaviv, Chag. Yeah. I, I want to know what the source of Chagaviv is. It's not, is that not it? I just want to know the I source. Know the I don't know the source. I, know I also know that it's one of the names because, like, my kid, well, I'm telling my girls. My girls come home from school saying it's Chagaviv, and everyone says it's Chagaviv. I'm just wondering, like, where it says that. Anyway. Um, but in the works of the written and oral Torah, in the written Torah, it is called Chag HaMatzos, the festival of matzah. You get That's right. The men of the Great Assembly, do you know who the men of the Great Assembly were? Very good. I'm happy you could translate English into Hebrew. Do you know who they were? Rabbis. They were rabbis. Although, to be fair, they didn't use the title rabbi. No, it's a and Hebrew word. Rabbi. Yes. And they were the bearded men. Like Rabbi. Yeah, Rabbi. Rabbi. Rabbi means my master. Um, these were the 120 sages and prophets who lived at the end of the time of the first temple through the exile into Babylonia at the beginning of the second temple period. And they are the ones 
who did a lot of cool stuff, like decided which books make it in and out of the Tanakh, instituted daily prayers, composed the basic text of the prayers, instituted the obligation to say brachas, the recitation of Hallel, instituted the law, many of the laws of Muksa, and a bunch of other fun stuff that made Judaism oh so much more complicated. Thanks, guys. There were 120 of them? That's right. Why, why they weren't like a basin? They function like a basin, yes. So why they have an even number? Well, it's not clear if they were all alive at the same time or there was a, over a period of time. It seems more that it's a group of people who are over a period of time, who are members of Sanhedrin, and of the people who are part of this project, there were 120. But some of them were, died before some of them were okay. maybe even born. Because it's a Mordechai. decent period of time. Mordechai, you heard of him? Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, no, Anshik, um, um, what's his name, Shimon Tzadik. You know, people like that. Daniel. Not Sanhedrin? I'm saying like you could be on both committees. It's like a super Sanhedrin. Yes. Okay, so they did not call the festival Chag Hamatzis. They don't know what they called the festival. Zman Cheruseinu, the time of our freedom. Which is why if you open your sitter and you look at the text in the benching or in the inserts for Pesach or the Musa for Pesach, you'll see that it is not called Chag HaPesach or Chag HaMatzis, it is called Zman Cheruseinu. No, I apologize. In Yalviyov, they still call it Chag HaMatzis. In the Musaf, they call it Zman Cheruseinu. Yes. So they added this name. So the first name that the Pahari is given is Chag HaMatzis, the festival of Matzah. The second time is Zman Cheruseinu, the time of our freedom. If you have a question, it's possible that more than one person it's has very, a question. It's a silly question. How does one spell that? Cheruseinu. I can't spell in any language. There we go. Yes. Chag HaMatzah Zeb Ziyom Tev Migur Zman Cheruseinu Ches Reish Vav Saf Nun Vav So they added the Zman Cheruseinu The time of our freedom and when you get to the era of the Mishnah and the Gemara, it is called by the name Chag HaPesach, or as we call it, Pesach. So it has three names. Matzah, which means Matzah. Cherus, which means freedom. And Pesach, which means, anyone know what Pesach means? Passover. It wasn't, what was that? What was Passover? Is it a trick question? No, I'm just like, like, like Passover. Passover. Passing over the doorways with the blood? Yeah, okay. So there's a slight miss. You know how when you translate from one language to the next, sometimes nuances get lost? So, like, there's this sense of like, you know, passing over. It's like, I have these two pens and I'll, I'll pass over this pen, I'll get to that pen, right? But you wouldn't, in biblical Hebrew, say that that would be an example of lifsoch. 
No, that's a different word. Oh, that's what that, that's, yeah, yeah. Which is where the pesach comes from, means to jump over something. So like you know like a person has an obstacle course and there's like a what what is that bar called that they jump over the hurdle the hurdle right so you jump over the hurdle it's like that okay so the idea is that Hashem is Hashem is like going around and killing Egyptians and then he just jumps over the Jewish houses it's more like jumping over than like a kind of like passing over so the word is to more of a dive a jumping or leaping over something so yes you can call it Passover. Um, but you are missing an s- important connotation of the word. Good? It matters, like, like it's not like a vehemence? Yes, it's, it's like there's a big chasm, and you don't get over, you don't, you, you, how, do you, how do you pass over the chasm? You take it, and you leap, and hopefully you make it to the other end, otherwise it's very sad. Good? Okay, so, the biblical name, which is the first name, is Chag HaMatzis, Matzah, the second name is? Zman Chersander, time of freedom. And the third is? Pesach, which means jumping over. <laughs> Leaping. So, it's very simple. The way you leave Egypt is you? Matzah, freedom, leaping. Now, these are all, the, all three of these names are in fact referring to the same thing. But they're all different, so they're different elements of the same thing. So what we're going to do is first talk about the idea of leaving Egypt in general. But we're going to focus on the leaving part, not the Egypt part. We did the Egypt part yesterday. And then we'll come back to how these three names actually refer to three different aspects. In fact, three different stages through which one leaves Egypt. The idea of leaving Egypt is that the Jewish people become a new entity. That's why the Exodus is considered to be the birth of the Jewish people. What happens when someone is born? It's not that they did not exist previously, but their existence is now fundamentally changed. They're a new being. Okay. Um, that has very practical ramifications. Okay. Um, one of those, for instance, is... Um, Halachically, at what point is someone considered to be a full-fledged person? No. No. Birth. I'm not going into right now for what that has ramifications, but a full-fledged person is at birth. Prior to birth, it is not that they're they're like there's still something there and there's halachas there, but they're different. So birth creates this transition. At that point, by the way, as far as Allah is concerned, the moment a baby is born, they are as much as a person as any other person in terms of all the halachas relating to being a person. Okay. Good? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the idea is you transition from being some kind of other quasi, somewhat not yet a person, somewhat part of the mother, something, 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 to actually being a person. And that is not considered to be a gradual shift, that is a total departure. Um, and therefore the halachas prior to birth and right after birth are radically different in many respects. And so in a similar sense, the Jewish people undergo a radical shift when they leave Egypt. Because what is the idea of leaving Egypt? The idea of leaving Egypt is to go to receive the Torah. The idea of leaving Egypt is we become Hashem's people. So we should pause and stop and think about what does that actually mean? 
There are two things in life that often have gradations between them. So, for instance, like say um, hot and cold. It's not correct to say something is either hot or it's cold. You can say that it's hot or it's colder, right? Then there are things in life where it either is or it is not. What would be an example of something like that either is or it is not? What? That would definitely be an example. Right? But there's gradations there in like relative stages of time. What? Well, that's true. That's true. Right? Um, but I, that would be an example of either the person's pregnant or they're not pregnant. It's either raining or it's not. Very good. It's either raining or it is not raining. Now, a or a that's also true. According to most halakhic authorities, <laughs> there is a small, there is an halakhic report that says that may not be the case. There could be a third option, but we will halachic? go with Yes. Really? Yes. There is a debate in halacha as to somebody who is, um, has genitalia of both genders. Are they halachically a doubt as to which gender they are, or are they halachically a third category? But it's either way considered to be an aberration. It's not considered to be a normal thing. But, okay. Um, so, here's one thing. Either you are God, or you are one of his creations. Yes? Mm-hmm. That seems simple enough, right? Okay. Now, if you're God... If you're one of his creations, there's rules you have to follow because a creation is, by definition, a limited thing. Okay? And what I mean by rules you have to follow, I mean you are constrained by something beyond yourself. Good? If you are God, then are you constrained by something beyond yourself? No. What? That's right. That's your making intuitive sense? Okay. I didn't give you that option, did I? It's annoying, isn't it? (laughs) Okay, now, what does it mean to be God's people? Is that we go from being in which category to which category? Like one of his creations or like him? You become his creation? No. You go from being... From being one of his creations? To being like him? And so if he is not constrained by anything... Then, we are not constrained by anything. Now, before you go jumping around and saying we become God, is this correct? Do we become God? No. So I'll use an analogy. If there is fire, the fire is hot. I've used this analogy before. It's a very good analogy. That's why I'll use it frequently. Fire is hot. The water is not intrinsically hot. But if the water is next to the fire, what happens? It gets hot. But for that to be the case, it has to be next to the fire, Right? So there's an idea that when we are attached to Hashem, when we are His people, then what is true of Him becomes true of us. So what is the freedom of leaving Egypt? What is the idea of being free of constraints? The constraint is, there's the constraints of of something that is created. It is bound by a certain nature, by a certain way of operating. And when the Jewish people leave Egypt, they become connected to Hashem. And once we're connected to Hashem, we are not constrained by anything. Not because we inherently have no limits, but because 
our connection to Hashem means His freedom flows through us. Can you explain why that would be that the cre- go from creation to being like Hashem? Why, 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 why that's what happens? Yes. No, that's just what it is. That's what you know. Like they, do you want a source or do you want an explanation? Those are two different things. So there's not really anything to explain. That's me like saying like, um, I'm just saying that there's a fact. This happened. There's, there was a state before when they were in Egypt, which is that the Jewish people were part of the reality of things that are created by Hashem and therefore everything's created has constraints. And the idea is leaving Egypt is to go receive the Torah, to go serve Hashem, to be his people. And that means that not we become... Not we now going to do something different, mm-hmm. but there's a radical like of becoming a new being, a new type of entity, an entity which is connected to Hashem. Or like the end of the Torah says, you are attached to Hashem, and therefore you are alive. Okay. And not talking about like physically walking around. Right? So the example you're using of like before birth, the child is kind of like it's part of a, crea- a creation, other than afterwards. It's its own. It's a separate being. It's a separate entity. So that kind of a shift is the kind of a shift we're talking about. It's a radical redefinition of what, it, what we are. Okay, thank you. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. Now, so the basic idea of the freedom of constraints is because the definition of who we are has been, re- has been redefined. Instead of being defined in terms of the reality of, of creation, of things which have rules and parameters and ways of operating, because of our connection to Hashem, His freedom flows through us. And so if we live in, 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 in sync and in line with that, then we are free from the constraints of the world. And that's what a Jew essentially is. A Jew is someone who lives in the world, but above the constraints of the world. Not because they're God, but because... Because what? We're connected to him. Because we're connected to him. When does, the beg- when does that shift, when does that departure from one category to the other category take place? It takes place on the 15th of Nisan at midnight. Halachic midnight, to be precise. It's only one day. When is the moment of birth? I'm saying for generations on end, or just that? That's when it happened. Oh, okay. Now, it plays itself out in every Pesach. That happens again and enables us to um, connect to that energy and, 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 and um, bring that out in ourselves. But essentially, that happened one time, and every uh, subsequent Pesach is just further manifesting it. Is that why we are, like, we don't lock doors and stuff? Or some people don't? It's related to that. Okay. Um, so. So the, the, the idea is you cannot get out of your limitations if you're going to work from the place of your limitations, right? As we discussed yesterday. But if your limitations define you, then how do you get out of your limitations? Well, you just stop being you. Don't be the thing that you think that you are. Biologically, do fetuses breathe? No. Do infants breathe? Yes. How quickly does that change have to take place? Literally right when they come out. Literally right away. Because God forbid they start breathing before they come out. And God forbid they don't start breathing after they come out, right? Mm -hmm. 
that's Yitzias Mitzrayim. That's, that's the kind of radical shift. And Pesach, Zman Cherseinu, Matzah, all of these things are getting at how does, that, how, do, how does that shift happen? So there are three stages. Now, I don't mean to say that there are three stages that you work on one and you work on the next and you work on the next. I mean to say is that there are three elements. One is a prerequisite for the other and when they all are present, then the Yitzias Mitzrayim, the leaving the constraints, the being re... I hate saying this because it's association with other religion, but the being reborn takes place. But if you don't have all three elements, it won't work. And each of these three elements are associated by the names, and there's a prerequisite. One only works on the prerequisite that the first one was in place. So we're going to go through them in order very quickly, and then afterwards I will elaborate and explain them. Okay? Matzah represents um, bittel. Um, and by bittel here... Um, I mean the negation of self. I'm not going to mince words around that. We're going to come back to what I mean by that, but that's the first, negation of self. Zman cheresenu, freedom, is the affirmation of self. And Pesach, well, Pesach is exactly what it sounds like. What does Pesach mean? Leaping. What? Leaping. Leaping, jumping. So, how does one leave Egypt? You have to negate yourself first. Right. And then you, I don't know what affirming yourself, but it must be Especially after yourself. negating yourself. Right. Negating yourself, affirming yourself. And then jumping. And then once, so once, a leap of faith? no, it's not a leap of faith. Okay. A leap of faith is actually so it depends. People will use the term leap of faith and just throw it around and mean all sorts of things. But there's a technical idea of a leap of faith, which comes from a particular um, Christian existentialist thinker, which is a very well defined idea, and arguably is not a central theme in Judaism if it exists at all, and is a very central theme in certain versions of Christianity. Um, it's a very interesting idea, but that's like not. What does it mean? It means recognizing the absurdity of something and, and embracing it and embracing it because only the absurd can really provide true salvation. It's like a very interesting idea. So we don't believe in that. I didn't, say, I didn't say it doesn't exist in Judaism at all. It's a matter of debate, different thinkers. But like it's not a, it's really not a central idea. Now, if you mean leap of faith, like just how people use it, you have to ask the person what you meant by leap of faith. People sometimes say that uh, people use the expression in any way they want, right? The problem with expressions is they morph their meanings, right? Um, some, if they use it, it, oh, you always have to kind of sense, is the person using it as a pejorative way or not, right? So did you take a leap of faith? And it's like, yeah, well then, obviously you don't think a leap of faith is a worthwhile thing to do, whatever you think it is, right? So let's not worry about the phrase since it's not actually part of the Torah. Okay, the, so we're gonna, we're gonna use an analogy first. We're gonna try to understand the analogy. Once we've understood the analogy, then we're gonna carry over that to what it actually means in terms of connecting to Hashem. And hopefully by that, we'll have some basic model for 
what it actually means to get Hashem's help in getting out of Egypt. Okay? Now, the, a common analogy in Hasidus is a teacher and a student. Much of our relationship with Hashem can be understood using the model of a teacher and a student, and that's the model we're going to use. Now, before we actually go into the specifics, we need to clarify about the analogy of a teacher and a student. What qualifies the teacher as a teacher and the student as a student to serve in this analogy? Does anyone know? Well, one needs to know something. Very good. That the other doesn't. Correct. Not necessarily. That that we'll get to. That's not a prerequisite for the analogy. That could actually be part of that. One has to know something. One can't know it because if the other one knows it, there's no teacher-student relationship, right? However, that's not sufficient. If one person knows it and the other one doesn't know it yet but could just as easily know it, then that does not qualify. It has to be that the person who doesn't know it is incapable of knowing it on their own. Moreover, going back to the teacher, it has to be that the teacher's knowing of it is not that they just happen to know it. That the, this kind of knowledge is so integrated into the mind of the teacher that um, it is the kind of knowledge that has become so clear and so intuitive and so ingrained that they can no longer conceive of not knowing it. So in this sense, we're not talking about a piece of information, right? Because a piece of information, let's see an example. Is there a piece of information that you know that I don't know? What is it? I know people's birthdays that you don't know. Very good, right? But we could take that information out of your mind without really changing fundamentally how your mind works, right? And we could insert that piece of information in my mind without your help, right? If I just stumble across and see it written down or someone else tells me, right? Um, what would be a good analogy of a teacher and a student then? If it's something experiential that the teachers, like had, only the teacher really had over maybe years, whatever, it's not something that a student can learn. Right, I mean, it, it, could be, it, it could be conceptual knowledge as well, but it would have to be the kind of conceptual knowledge that is developed over, over time. Over, over, over time and through changing your whole mindset. And the student would have to be not, a, not naturally gifted in that regard, that they couldn't go through that process on their own. Okay? Because if they're naturally gifted and they could go through the process on their own, then it's just a matter of time. Like, for instance, um, we'll use math as my analogy. Um, anybody here study calculus ever? You studied some calculus? Yeah. Okay. Did you understand it? Kind of. Good enough. Do you think that if there was a pandemic going around and you didn't have a smartphone um, and you were just locked away in a countryside estate to avoid the pandemic for a few years, you could have come up with calculus on your own? No, no you couldn't. But could you kind of understand if someone explains it to you? And could you have understood it better if you were a better student, they were a better teacher? Okay, so that, that would be a good example, right? Now, there was a man named Isaac Newton and he did come up with calculus on anyone telling him, right? Is he the only person in the world who did that? No, there was another guy named Leibniz who did it at the same time. Really? Yeah. Oh, sucks yeah. For well, they, they each one claimed that they, they were first, and yeah, anyways. Slight differences, but the basic idea they both came up with on their own. But now they're not unique in history. Presumably any other person who was as brilliant and as gifted and, you know, as, as Isaac Newton and had the opportunity probably could have also come up with it. 
right? So the, the example of the student is that the person, it's not just they don't know it because they haven't encountered the information. Then they don't know it because they haven't gone through the work. They are incapable of actually getting to that place using their own natural gifts. They're not incapable of being brought to that place, though. That's also critical. They're incapable of being brought to that place and they can't be a student. And then the teacher, again, has to be somebody, it's not just they happen to know this, but what they know is so deeply ingrained right, that that's actually reflective of how their mind works now. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Is this all teaching? Because, like, technically teachers teach things all the time that someone else can learn or even, I guess, not develop it over time. So the thing is, if you understand this, you can then tone it down to adjust it for different things that are, have some element of this to some degree. So the thing is, you want, what you want to do is, when, this analogy, which is a very common analogy in Chassidus, what you want to do is you want to realize that the analogy can serve two purposes. One is the purpose for which it exists in Chassidus, which is as an analogy to understand Hashem's relationship with the Jewish people. The other way is you could use it as a model for what teaching is in its most pristine state and then adjust it for the particular circumstances in which you're engaged in. Would you like to know how I learned how to teach? I never took any teaching classes. And I'm not so, I'm saying the best teacher in the world, but I, I happen to be pretty decent at it. Um, my, my main instruction how to teach was from learning Chassidus because this analogy shows up very, very often and is now analyzed in many, many different dimensions. It gives you a lot of food for thought, a lot of framework for how to think about classroom interactions. Now, does that mean every classroom interaction is exactly this analogy? No. But there's a lot of things that have some element of this. This taught you how to convey information? Because this, this just says what it is. Well, that's the prerequisite for the analogy. We haven't gotten to the analogy. Oh, okay. How does the teacher convey the information to the student? How does the student learn from the teacher? And that is analyzed in many, many different respects. We are going to focus specifically on one part of the analogy, which is what is necessary for the student to do in order for the teacher to be able to teach them. Because after all, Let's think about this for a second. What are we asking is that the teacher should do what? Bring the student to a place that the student could not get to on their own. Is that basically what we're describing as Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the Exodus from Egypt? Hashem taking to us to a place we could not get to on our own? So what does the student have to do to make that possible? What do we have to do to make it the case that Hashem can take us? You have to be open to it. Well, there's three things we have to do. What are the three Nullify things? Yourself. Nullify yourself. Affirm yourself. And? And leap. And leap. And we're going to try and understand what those three things are in the context of the teacher and the student, because it's a little bit more concrete there. And then we will then carry it over to what it, what it looks like in connecting to Hashem. But we will focus on what it looks like connecting to Hashem on a level that more or less pertains to people like us, not like what it applied to like say big tzaddik everybody has to do this on their level but we're going to take it as it applies to you know regular everyday people good okay so the first thing is is that in order for the student to learn they have to nullify themselves and to nullify themselves involves uh, uh, basically means that they have to believe that they really don't know that you really don't know
And you also have to actually, on a certain level, not want to know either. Which is strange, yeah. Yeah. Like not want to understand it because you get that you probably can't get at the same level, or? So I want to elaborate. I want to do, want, there's two elements here, that you don't know and that you don't want to know, okay? Let's do that you don't know first, and then you don't want to know second, okay? Um, I mean, there's the obvious thing is that the person thinks that they know what the, what the teacher is going to say, right? They think they already know the information. I mean, that's clear. You, you have to realize that, that they know something that you don't, right? That, that's clear. Um, the, the deeper version of that is, 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 is to realize it's not that they happen to know it and you don't, and you don't know it yet. Is that what they know, you could never know on your own. There's like, it's not really feasible for you to have gotten it. Now, I'm going to reduce the analogy a little bit. So let's say, let's use an example. Let's say somebody who is you know, somewhat gifted in a subject, let's say math, and they've been studying that subject for 15, 20 years, right? And you're in their class. There should be this sense that not only do I not know what, whatever they're gonna tell me, I don't yet know. I don't really, even when they will tell it to me, I really won't know it either. Because what they're telling me is something that they know from 15 years of engagement in mathematics with a gifted mind. There's no way after an hour and a half lecture, I'm going to really know what, what they're talking about. So it's not just I don't know now. I'm not really, I don't like, I don't know, like I really don't know. Like, I'm not capable of knowing. What they're offering to teach me is totally beyond my league. I was sitting in breakfast today with, with, a, with a student and we were schmoozing and he asked me a question which was a somewhat pointless question about Tanya. Um, so I turned it around and asked him a different question. And before I, and the question was like a profound life, it was like, it was like one of these profound, important life questions that one should, you know, not necessarily have a clear answer to, but at least have considered seriously. It doesn't matter what it is, but I start talking about it. And it wasn't, you know, 15, 20 seconds before I finished the question, he already had an answer. And so he's a really younger student, and there are a bunch of older students sitting around, and they were just looking like, how, and I said, like, how do you have an answer to this question? I just finished asking you the question. You have never considered this. It's like a very important life issue. It doesn't have a simple answer. And 20 seconds later, you have what to say on the matter? Like, you understand? Like, like not I don't know yet because you haven't told me. Even if you tell me, I still won't understand it. Because what you're talking about is like beyond me. It's really beyond me. And if that's the case, now I'll get to the second thing. Where does the desire to want to know it come from? Thinking that you could know. There's a sense of, in other words, one of the things about people is that generally speaking, desire comes from a sense of Not necessarily a rational sense, but some sense that something is, at least in theory, within your reach. You could see yourself there. So even things that on a practical level we realize are unattainable, in our imagination we can see ourselves there. But if in your imagination you can't see yourself there, you can't desire it. 
So this teacher is going to tell me something that I don't know. I'm not really capable of knowing. I could never see myself knowing, so how can I desire knowing it? In this, in this example because it's so out of reach. Yeah. You know that. Right. It's not, I don't want to know it, right? We're not talking about an active resentment of knowing it. We're not saying, you're not saying like, if you knew it, that would be a good thing. Of course, of course. It, it's important to, the, the, the issue here is we often use the word like, we often use, we often have a, a, a problem where we use words like want, desire, things like that to talk about two different things. If I gave you a billion dollars, would you accept that? Yeah. All things being equal, right? Maybe you should like call an accountant very quickly to figure out and a lawyer if everything's legal and how to practically do it so it doesn't ruin your life. But like, like a billion dollars, that, that sounds great, right? But it's not correct to say that you really desire a billion dollars. Can you imagine yourself with a billion dollars? You can imagine yourself with a lot of money, right? Yeah. But a billion is a like a billion is a lot of a lot of money. It's like it's re, it's like. Re, like how much is a billion dollars? What? Ten million. Um, hundred thousand million. It's a thousand million. So, if you had a billion dollars and you put it in the bank account, and you got minimal interest rates, which you wouldn't get, how much money would you make a day? Let's say let's let's say you made let's say you let's say you made one percent annual interest on that. What's one percent of a billion dollars? A hundred million dollars. A hundred million dollars a year is how many? How much? Math people don't deal with these kinds of numbers. We deal with like E, I, pi, negative one, so infinity. K. What? 30K-ish? Well, no. no. 30% of the is what? 100 million. That's 100 million divided by? Yeah. 360. Can you even write 100 million? How much do you know? It's a lot of money, right? Like, could you spend, could you, what? Let's find that out, yeah. <laughs> If I had the paper, I would do it. Sorry, what was it? A hundred? hundred million. hundred million divided by three hundred sixty-five. Divided by sixty-five. How many? How many? Ah, at least two hundred seventy-three. Two hundred seventy-three thousand dollars, nine hundred seventy. A day. I can't say the words. A day. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. Right. That's, that's what. That's nice. what. Yeah. That's nice. A day. Like, what would you do with like like after a year? What else would you buy? You understand? Like, like, and you haven't even touched the principal. Like. You don't need that much money. Even if your imaginations, what would you do with it? Now, maybe once you have that kind of money, your, your sense of imagination would change, as is known by people who are very, very rich. But as you are right now, you see what I'm saying? Like, like it's not that you res- or re- don't want in a sense, like if you gave it to me, it would be bad. But like, I just can't see, can't see yourself there. And if you can't see yourself there, you didn't really desire it. On the contrary, if you are desiring, it means that you see yourself there. So going back to the thing, if you really desire to hear what the teacher's going to say, that means that you can see yourself as really understanding. But if you see yourself as really understanding it, either you're really not, don't need, you don't need them to be your teacher, or you don't really, you're not really 
appreciating that what they're giving you is totally beyond you. In other words, the nullification of self comes from realizing this is really beyond me. It's beyond me. I don't understand it now. I won't really understand it once they give me the ant, once they explain it. I can't even, I can't, if I, I can't even see myself fully understanding this. Not that it's, not that it is not a good thing to understand. That's not the idea. But I'm not in a place to, to have any connection to this. Why does that cause nullification of self? That is nullification of self. It is um, now again. What what aspect of self are we nullifying? What do we mean? We're not, what was the self here that we're nullifying? This is very important. Are we talking about nullifying your self worth? No. No. And this is very important. Okay. There's a story of the Alter Rebbe that the Alter Rebbe was. It's a longer story, but the, but the end of the story is that a chassid gave the Alter Rebbe a gift at a Thanksgiving to appreciate something the Alter did, and he gave the Alter Rebbe a snuff box. A snuff box is a box where you keep snuff. What is snuff? Anyone know? Good smelling spices. <laughs> tobacco. <laughs> tobacco. Ground tobacco that one looks like this. How does that ever come out? Don't ask me. I don't this. Well, this is a thing. I don't know. And, like, and if you burn the tobacco and inhale it, like that makes it better? <laughs> Rolling is disgusting. So the Alter Rebbe said... The Alter said there's one sense that is not naturally predisposed to indulgence, and that is the sense of smell. You don't see people running around, I have to smell that smell. I heard, you know, in, in, you know it's like you have to, you have to go to, this, to the, this place. It has the most amazing smell. Like, that's just not a normal thing for people to do. People go to places they want to see things, they want to hear things, they want to taste things, they want to touch things. Smells like when it happens, we're not, we need this, like, very strong hedonistic drive. And naturally. And so the Alter Rebbe says, and you want me to corrupt it? <laughs> so the Alter Rebbe broke off the top of the box to use it as a mirror for his tefillin. So this is how the story was told to the Tzemach Tzedek, the Alter Rebbe's grandson. And the, the Tzemach Tzedek's grandson interrupted and said, yeah, the tefillin have to be perfectly, it's very, one of the rules of the mitzvah of tefillin, I forgot you guys pretty much, tefillin have to be exactly in the right spot. They have to be above the hairline, the original hairline, because it goes bald and, I, was, I remember as a kid I asked my father how come his tefillin aren't backwards because his hairline is back here <laughs> <laughs> my father was bald before I was born so. but he, uh, he says no no it's the original hairline and it has to be perfectly in the center of the skull and straight not angled so it's easy for the tefillin to get out of place um, so this story was told to the Alter Rebbe as I told to the Tzemach Tzedek, the Alter Rebbe's grandson, he said, my grandfather never broke anything. He never broke anything in his life. He had no connection to the idea of breaking. Probably he took out the pin that held the, the lid on, but he didn't break it off. He pulled out the pin, and by pulling out the pin, then it loosened it. Hmm. Now, what, what disturbed the Tzemach Tzedek so much about the idea that Alter would have broke it off. What does breaking mean? Destructive. It's destructive, right? Yes, in order to use the snuff box where the Alter ever used the snuff box, it had to be dismantled, right? But that could be done in a way where all you're doing is extracting what you need, right? Pull out the pin, remove the lid, and now you have the lid. Or you could just break it off, right? 
this type of, this is beyond me, there's no way I could ever understand it. This can be happen in two ways. This can happen in a way of breaking, and it can happen in a way dismantling. of dismantling. Okay. There, the Gemara says that the first step in education is being harsh, the left side. The left hand. First the left hand pushes away and then the right hand draws close. First you have to be harsh, set down the rules, and then you draw the student in and make them bring them close. Is that sound like a proper way to educate people? In fact, is that Jewish custom? The first day the child comes into the cheder, everybody says, these are the rules. You will sit in your seats. Is that how that works? No. No. Right? Um, that's not how that works. Right? How, what is, in fact, how we start off by educating someone? Kindness. What? We lick the honey. We lick the honey, we, right? We make a party, we lick the honey off the olive bays, we throw candies at them. Yeah. It's like a tradition. It's a tradition. You put the honey on the letters of the olive bays, the child associates Torah with sweetness. And you throw candies so that the child has a sense that the Torah is like, and you may have honey cake as well. Um, the, the, the idea the idea is that there's to be a context of things the context of something has to be that you there has to be a, a, a sense that you that the student feels that they're cared for the student feels that they're loved the student feels that they're appreciated that the teacher has their interests in heart that learning is a good thing once that is in place then you can set down rules Right? In other words, the first step in the actual process of educating is creating structure. But education needs an environment in which to thrive. And the environment that education thrives in is one of security, love, compassion, support. The environment makes a difference. And when you do, when you lay down a rule in that kind of environment, it's not, it, it, it's a different rule. It's experienced differently. So now, if there's a sense that the student has that their self-worth is not in question, and the contrary, the very fact that the teacher wants to teach them is an affirmation of their self-worth. It's affirmation of how much the teacher believes in them. It's affirmation of the, of the fact the teacher cares about them. And the teacher is exuding that. The teacher is expressing that. That's actually what the Talmud says before you start teaching, you should make some jokes. You should put people at ease. But in that place, if the student then has the, 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 the awareness that what the teacher is going to teach is really beyond them. They don't understand it. They, they, even once the teacher says they're not going to really understand it then. And they can't even see themselves really understanding because the teacher really knows things that are totally beyond them. Then what's happening is they're dismantling the sense of themselves that prevents them from actually learning. But they're not destroying themselves. Can you explain how? I'm going to explain. Yeah. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use an analogy for an analogy because it's a little bit easier, okay? There are things people can't do, like just physically. Okay. 
Um, is being, if someone thinks they can do something and they can't, and you point out that they can't, do they get insulted? What? Usually not. Usually not. I would say it kind of depends on the context. For instance, if there's a sense that being able to do that is the basis of your self-worth, and that's part of why the person is holding on to the sense that they can do it, and then someone points out that they can't do it. And that person points out they can't do it, also exuding the sense that what makes people worthwhile is the ability to do such a thing. That's very invalidating, right? That, 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 that's very, the, the person fears and feels like they're being attacked. On the other hand, if the, if the person relates, the person relates that, that, that their, the, the value of that person, their care for that person, has nothing to do with whether or not they can do this or not. And then out of that place of care concern, because they don't want the person to get themselves into some issue that they really can't deal with, in that context, they point out that they're not really capable of something. I don't say that's pleasant. It may not be pleasant, but they don't feel like they're being attacked. So do they have to dismantle some part of their self-conception? Sure, but it's not being destructive. So what is the step? The step is that is that in a context in which the, 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 the student feels that the, the, the teacher cares about them, the teacher wants them to, wants them to succeed, the teacher values them, they feel valued, therefore they feel, they, right? That's all in place. That's, that's, that's not the actual process of the education. That's all creating that right. In that environment, the student has to come to realization what the teacher knows is really beyond me. I do not know this. I do not know it now. I won't know it after they say it. I won't know it. I, I can't really, really I, I have to realize that I can't see myself knowing what they know because that means I'm, I'm not acknowledging how far beyond it really is. And that does challenge the person's sense of self as a capable person. And if that doesn't happen, or to the degree that doesn't happen, that prevents them from ever being receptive to something that's really beyond them. But that has to happen in the environment in which we're focusing on that specific aspect, right? The knowledge, not the worthwhileness, not the value of the person. That has to be made clear and reinforced as, as part of the, 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 as the environment so that that process is not a destructive breaking, but dismantling. And that was what the, so bothered the Tzemach said. The idea that the Alter Rebbe would come at something aggressively and just take it up, or just like break it off. The Alter, like the Alter Rebbe had no, no, the Alter Rebbe could, 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 could dismantle things and, and, and negate things, but every, always in a way that it was felt to be a constructive experience. And so that's, that's a very important part of this first level, that it has to be in that environment. It has to be in that kind of a context. Okay, what's the next step? person is now like, this is beyond me. I can't really understand. It's beyond my ability to understand. Well, then they have to be enough. I mean, I don't know what you mean by this. Maybe like enough of a self to like take in the new, whatever's right. going to be told to them. Right. 
So I'm going to, physically, right, you can pour the water where the, in the cup, but it's not enough for the cup to be empty. You also need the cup not to have holes in it. Otherwise, it's all going to spill out. If a person has no, if a person has no sense of humor, they can't get a joke. That makes sense? If a person's mind isn't going to be engaged, will they hear anything? No. In order for your mind to be engaged, do you have to believe that on some level you can get something? That you are capable? Yeah. So after realizing that this is totally beyond you and you can't really get it, but on the other hand, and it's on the other hand, you can't get it doesn't mean you can't get it at all. It means that you, it's really beyond you, but you still can engage to whatever degree you can engage with. You can pay attention, you can be involved, right? In other words, that this is not someone coming and imposing something foreign onto you. This is something that you can freely involve yourself in. You think of an example. When a student feels like they're being challenged, um, that if, if, they, if, if, they, if they don't get, they have to get the right answer. If they don't get the right answer, then, then they're out, then it's wrong, right? What does that do to the student's mind? Is the student's mind more fully engaged or does the student's mind become more anxious and rigid? Right, that's what happens, okay? Um, in other words, there's a level of being, feeling free and feeling relaxed to be able to say like, I can, I can play this game, I can be involved here, I can, I can participate. And that's necessary to be able to receive, just like the person who's in a state where they're not, you know, some people just, they, in essence, everyone has a sense of humor, but they're, they're just they're not in a place of having a sense of humor right now. You can tell a joke and they won't find it funny. If a person is not in a state of willingness to engage intellectually, let their mind be creative, let their mind hear things, it's not gonna work. So it's not enough for a person to say, oh, this is totally beyond me. I, I, it's, it's something much higher than me. I can never understand it. And like the people sometimes do that. Sometimes like you start talking about an idea and people's like, that's a very lofty level. Mm. Like, yes, I can't understand. It's very lofty. And like, I can't understand. And I won't understand. And like, so what's the point? Like, I, like I'm not even, even going to turn on. There has to be kind of an active engagement, right? Not that you're being coerced into listening to this person. You freely want to engage. You feel, you feel like this... This is something that you can be part of. And even if I'm not going to get it fully, I'll get what I can get. I'll listen to what I can listen to. I'll try and grasp hold of what I can grasp hold of. This is something that relates to me and belongs to me. And that is that. So there's an affirmation of yourself as, yes, I can do this. Yeah. Is the first step like nullifying almost like a sense of wonder and awe for like how like how vast this is and you cannot fully get it but then the second is like but I want to at least scratch the surface if I can yeah it's a good way of putting it I wouldn't say it's the only way of putting it but that is a way of putting it yeah but that first wonder and awe has a certain it's not a pleasant wonder and awe because it's like there's a it's not just it's amazing it's like I really never gonna like I'm really never so it's so hard then to get to number two because it's very easy to just despair. Hence the sages, Nadja they're like, you, it's not, a, not I have to make, there's another name to this. You have to focus on that as well. It's like most things in, in, in Judaism that are real involve pulling together different strands of ourselves. Okay, what's the last step? Yeah. At the end of the day, what's the teacher trying to do? Teach you. Teach you, meaning like give you some of crumbs or to bring you to the level of understanding what they understand. 
And maybe you can't get there on your own, but they're going to help you get there, right? And it might be a very long and involved process, right? Might be going places that you don't know and have no way of predicting how it's going to work, right? Are you willing to take that adventure? Are you willing to uh, borrow, borrow a phrase from Shakespeare to explore the undiscovered country? Right? In other words, are you willing to go to the place that you don't think that you can get to on your own, but someone else can get you there? The place that you can't see what it is. Right? There's the other side of the horizon. Right? You don't know what's there. You don't know what it's going to be like. And you don't know, how, you don't know what's going to be entailed to get there. No, that's the Pesach. So there's, there's a willingness to jump, a willingness to... What is the idea of jumping? Is that where you, where you end up is not commensurate with where you were. And obviously physically, there's, you can only jump so far, right? But the idea is that when you're walking, everything is a order of progression. When you jump, you were here, and then you end up over there. So what's the jump? Is all of a sudden, now you know? Not now I know. I am going to know what the teacher knows. Why? They're going to help me. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna give me what I need. They're going to guide me along the way. And what is that going to look like? And how am I going to get there? I have no idea. But the fact that I have no idea doesn't take any away at all from my, my willingness, my dedication, my devotion. So you have a person who first is like, this is totally beyond me. I have no ability to really get what this means. Even when it's going to be given to me, like it's, 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 it's not... I can't even imagine knowing this. And yet, step two, I'm going to be engaged. This is something that, I, this is something that I'm going to participate in, something that I'm going to be involved in, something I'm going to be an active participant in. I'm going to listen. I'm going to hear. I'm going to retain. And I'm willing to let this teacher take me to places that I can't even imagine where it goes. Now, if you have... Right, that's the third step. That's the matzah. If you have all three of those things coalescing in your mind... What can the teacher now do? Teach you. Teach you and take you where? To places you never thought you could go. That's right. Sounds like a Disney movie. I know. I see like a hand pulling yours and then leaping. Yeah, but, but the thing is to actually do it is a little trickier. Okay, so now. We're human beings, right? We exist on many different planes. We have physical lives, we have financial lives, social lives, emotional lives, all sorts of aspects of ourselves, right? Does any of that really give us a basis for really appreciating what, what Hashem really is? All the elements of our human lives, do any of that really, is that really a good basis for, for getting a sense of what it means to be godly? No, no. So as a human being, can you ever really get godliness? No. Can you even desire godliness? You. you can't really conceive of what it would be like to have it, right? And coming to terms with that is somewhat um, unpleasant, yes? Mm-hmm. But are you supposed to feel therefore unworthy? No, right? It's not, it's not no one's a... You can't do it, but on the contrary, Hashem loves you and wants to be connected to you, but you can't do this. So are you going to just then chalk up and say, okay, well, godliness is such a lofty level that has nothing to do with me, and that's the end of it? You say, no, no, no. 
whatever little bit that I might be exposed to and have the opportunity to participate in, I'm going to try and hold on to that. I'm going to try and grab hold. I'm going to engage in that. That's going to be that's that's something that I want to be involved with. And where is that going to lead me? Where is Hashem going to take me with this whole godliness thing? What does that look like in the end? I have no idea. And it doesn't bother me. I'm going to go. I'm going to. I'm willing to follow that adventure. If a person has those three things in their mindset, how does that apply? Now we're going to we make this on our level. How does that apply? To, how does that affect the way they approach their practical day to day Judaism? If the, if you. Yeah, and then those three things are mindset things. Okay, but now let's imagine that, that you actually have that mindset to some degree. And then there's Judaism, right? Day to day life Judaism. Are there different kinds of mitzvahs? Some we find more meaningful, some we find less meaningful. Mm-hmm. Are we going to approach mitzvahs that way if we have this mindset? Right? Where is a person coming from when they're saying, oh, this mitzvah is more meaningful, this mitzvah is not so meaningful? Right. Than right. So if you haven't done step one, right? <laughs> There's a sense of oh, m- mit, the, the, the godliness, mitzvahs. It's, it's, it's something that's comparable, compensate with me. It's something I can appreciate. Something I can see, right? Mm-hmm. No, but if you really go step matzah, it's like whatever is in mitzvahs, whatever is in whatever is in saying a bracha, whatever is in lighting Shabbos candles, whatever is in bird sacrifices. Beyond me, it's totally beyond me. It's godly. It's, it's, I've, I, I've, I've no. Handle on it, no, no angle on it, nothing. I, I couldn't even see myself. Now, on the other hand, if you just have that, the person can just feel like, so then what? Doing mitzvahs is just like Hashem imposing himself on me? I, I don't see any point. Like, it's nothing to do with me. It's just, so you have to have the next step, which is also, but if I'm given the opportunity to do these mitzvahs, to participate in Judaism, even if I don't fully understand the godliness of it, I can at least do them. I can at least, you know, the level that interaction I have access to, the godliness is a good thing. I want to, I want to be participating to whatever degree I can. But then there's the third thing. A person can like, okay, so I'm just going to have like this like tangential connection. I'll do the mitzvahs and whatever the deeper ultimate truth of these things are is totally beyond. Or realizing that Hashem through me ta- doing the mitzvah is going to take me to places that I don't know what they are and I don't have no way of knowing what it will look like, but I'm going to go there. And the ultimate, what Judaism is going to do and how it's going to transform me, I'm, I'm willing to go on to that adventure. When a person has all three of that, then every mitzvah becomes vitally important. They'll overcome themselves to do any mitzvah. And what happens now is that Hashem, through the Judaism, is taking them from a place of being just the mere human being and will transform them into a very godly existence. But if but but that depends on that attitude in doing the mitzvahs. Now, obviously, for some people, doing mitzvahs is like such a given. It's such an absolute, like the whole element, this whole going out of Egypt is implied. But I think most of us struggle with doing mitzvahs to some degree or another. And very often, the mitzvahs we don't struggle with. It's it's not necessarily because of the leaving of Egypt, but because we grew up with them, they're habitual, we find, they appeal to us on some human level. And so the whole relationship with the Judaism is constrained. It's in Egypt. And so the idea is that on Pesach, we have to have matzah. We have to realize that godliness is something totally beyond us. We don't, 
even if it was shoved right in our faces, we wouldn't even recognize what it is. We can't, even, we can't imagine what it would be like to be connected to Hashem. But at the same time, not to feel, therefore, it's something that has nothing to do with me, something that, no, I, 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 will, I will, will engage with and I'll hold on to and I will be invested in it and, and I have the capacity for it in some way and it's mine. And that where that's going to take me is a place far beyond where I can ever see myself and I'm willing to go, go there and how that's going to look and what challenges I'm going to face and how that's going to totally reshape me, it's fine. And a person has those three elements built one on top of the other in their mindset, then the practice of Judaism takes them out of their limitations. Now you can take that idea and then put it on many, many levels, whatever person thinks. And that's the, that, that's the idea, is that leaving, leaving Mitzrayim has to come from him. Hashem takes us out of Mitzrayim. Just like the, the relationship of the st- teacher and the student, if it's the real teacher and student, the student can't learn what the teacher knows on their own. They can't. But the teacher can't come along and just Im- imbue the student with their knowledge. That's not how it works. They can just grab the student and just take them where they want to go. The student has to make themselves the kind of person who can be taught and taught in this kind of a way. I'll give you an example of, 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 I mentioned one student this morning, mentioned another student. A student asked me um, right before davening, he was learning with another teacher and he had a question. And as he started explaining his question, the question was very confused. And I didn't understand like what he was asking in relation to the mimer that he would learn with this other teacher. So I asked the other teacher, he says, explain it. Okay, and I was like, okay. And I said, explain to me again your question. He explained it. And, and the more he talked, the more the question was metamorphosizing. And um, they said, okay, can you say your question in three succinct sentences? And they were very long-winded, convoluted sentences. Said, okay, can you just tell me, what is, the, what is the thing that was said in class? What is the other thing that you think is relevant? And why do you think those two things aren't consistent with each other? Just give me those three pieces of information. And then he proceeded to give it in that form in very long-winded sentences, but talking about now something completely unrelated. And it was just like a big chunk. And I said, you know what? Sometimes people don't have a question. Sometimes people are just lost. They're just drowning in stuff and they have no sense of how to anchor it and how to orient and what goes where. And, and just, it's not a question. My recommendation is start over. Go back to this teacher and say, this section of the mimer, this section of discourse, what you said in class, I didn't understand. Could you please teach it to me again from the beginning? And he, he smiles like, okay, I, I, can, I can do that. Why was he able to receive that answer like that? How, let me put it here. How much of it had to do with my answer and how much did it to do with, his, with him? He got that he was lost. He got that he was Before what I said, what I said. Why did he get that he was lost? He didn't think he was lost. He was talking and talking and talking and talking. He, there was some element of like, this is really beyond me. I want to participate. I don't really know what it means to learn this stuff. He had some of these elements in it. And then he comes with this question. And I tell him, like, no, no, no. You think you're going to go this way. You need to not go this way. Drop all of that and you need to do something else entirely. He's like, okay, I can do that. Mm-hmm. And like, sincerely. You know the interesting thing? <laughs> he was the one that thought the younger student was like a little bit like crazy for having an answer so quickly after. <laughs> Same student. So there's, there's a kind of a maturity to be able to 
be taken out of Egypt. There's a maturity to be able to be taught, right? And, and those three elements. And the thing is, it's not those three elements. It's not like you have them entirely or you don't. Like nothing in nothing in Chassidus is like you either it's hundred percent or you don't. But the degree to which you have these three things, the degree to which that sense that, that Hashem is coming and taking you to a whole new place um, actually becomes part of our experience of Judaism. And the order is very important. Right? Because each one is kind of built off of the next. Right? There's the sense of it's beyond me, but I'm not, I'm not just walking away from it. And I'm not settling that it's just going to be like whatever little crumbs I get. I'm going all the way, even though I don't know what all the way is, because I'm, I'm going to be led that way, and I don't know where that's going to go. But if you take one of those elements on its own, it just doesn't work. Right? That's what people say. You have to be open. I mean, it, it's nice, but being open is a little vague. Like, is there, you ever heard the expression, like, um, some people are so open that you know, all their brains fall out? It's like, I'll accept anything. No, I won't accept anything. This is beyond me. That is not beyond me. That's just stupid. <laughs> like, like, I'm well qualified to evaluate that piece of information over there, and that's just wrong, or it's stupid. Like, you know, like, like there, there is some level of judgment even in that first step to saying, like, I recognize what this teacher knows is beyond me. And what that person's saying, which I don't understand, is because the person's a fool and they're speaking nonsense. It's not, oh, you don't understand you're not good enough. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. This and this, but I, I, I can recognize what's beyond me. Yeah. So just bringing it back to the beginning when you said that that brings like a true sense of freedom, the way that freedom from constraints that humans have. Mm-hmm. Um, can you elaborate on that? Like what, how do we get that after these stages? What does that mean? Well, if I could elaborate on what that looks like then. Then you're not open. Then what are we trying to do? We're trying to imagine what that looks like. So you're not doing number three? You see the problem is, I can, we can describe, as we did yesterday, what constraints look like, right? We can describe how doing the three steps will change how I approach the Judaism, right? I can't describe what happens after that. But how do you know it's not constrained, though? That's... That's where step one is important. Do you have a sense that this is really beyond you? Is even just that, that sense that this is beyond me, the freedom aspect? No, like no. Because it's beyond you means, you know, it's free. You're not free. You're not there yet. Mm. But, so, but if it's beyond you, I don't, I don't know what that is, right? I mean, I'll give you an example. There are many people who are in oppressive regimes like the Soviet Union who knew that they had to like, this is not okay. We have to leave. Did they know what it like, like to live in a free society? No, but we know that a free society isn't this, and this is not, this is not good. That's a kind of knowing, right? I can, this person, what, what, what do they have? What are they in touch with? What does it mean? To, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I really don't know what it is. That, that's the problem, is that you can't get, you can't get like the, you know, like, you know, the, there's a program called Waze that you can use to like, so you, you tell them where you want to go, and they'll give you links, and you can look at the map. Like, you don't get that with Yitzhak Mitzrayim. How do the Jews know where? Just in the desert. Yeah, the Jews leave Mitzrayim, and how, where do they go? Where do they go? Anyone know where they go? They know one thing. They're going to the mountain of God to serve Him. Okay, other than that, do they know where they're going? There's a cloud. If the cloud is going straight, we go straight. When it goes left, we go left. Do you have any knowledge of where you're about to go? 
I want you to think about this for a second, right? And by the way, it took them 40 years, but it's beside the point, right? You, like, you, you're like, you ever been, you've ever been walking with someone and just follow them and you have no idea where, like, it requires a certain, like, I don't know where we're going. I don't know where we're going. Like, what's, what's, we're going to turn left. They, they start turning left. What's, what's that, what's, what's on the other side there? You don't see yet. What's it? I don't know. Are we about to cross the stream? We're thinking, no. It's new. New means you can't even imagine what it is. And here's the, here's the unfortunate part. When you, when you have a sense of that, when you've gone out of Mitzrayim and your Judaism has, has, it has become the way that Hashem takes you to that place of freedom, you won't be able to convey what you have to anybody else who hasn't gone there. For the same reason. see let's say you can experience on some level like okay whatever you have I want that that you can that you can this you can see you can see this person's like I don't know what's going on in this I don't know what it is but but there's something about the way they're living their life like they have something I don't right. yes that you could have but you still can't articulate right. what it is and you don't really you can't articulate what it is you don't know what it's like from the inside yeah 100% that you could have right? but like again what am I gonna do I'm gonna now use words to describe that thing the best that I can do is like sometimes I tell a story about a person. I like to tell other stories about the person before this person. Is so you at least have a sense of who that person is and that puts that story in light and you get a real sense of what they must have been experiencing to have a sense of who they were. But, but it's very hard. That's, that's... Would, it, would it be okay if I ask another question? Um, we, um... Yes. Okay, I just want to point... Th- so this, we're done with this and then next week, like I said, we're going to do start going through the actual things like... What does matzah represent and all these different kinds of things about the Seder and more specifics about Pesach. Yes, now I can ask you a question. Thanks. It's it's related to this, but um, in another, I think it might have been last Tanya class, two Tanya classes ago, you said something about how we can't, like, in, in trying to understand God, there's a certain point where logic, you said something, I'm not, I don't know if I can word this, I hope you kind of grasp it, but like, there's a certain kind of being able to, to understand and grasp and then there's something that you just can't mm-hmm. right I don't know if I don't know how I to mean that's it, true I don't know the context like which long, I said it but yes I don't know the context either but I was going to ask you like how do you know when you're just using human like if everything's so beyond you like why even bother trying like how do you know what's okay to try to understand and grasp versus like it's all just so beyond me like you're saying here the simple answer is you need a teacher. That's the simple answer. That's why Judaism is based primarily on tradition of lived instruction, oral Torah, rather than written. Even when we wrote down the oral Torah, we did it in such a way that it's not... It has to be understood in tradition. The most compelling argument you can make is this is how I was taught in Judaism. And you need a teacher. That, that's really why you need a teacher. There's no, there's no way around that. The kind of problem that you're asking is the problem of not having a teacher. And then the question is, a teacher, in order to trust a teacher, you have to have a sense that the teacher really, really knows. They know the thing that I'm not qualified to know, but I can sense that in them, as you were describing a minute ago. And that I know that they care about me. And, and, and in that, you, you have to... Yeah. 
Because I notice even in art class, like there will be times when you will use words and bring it down and try to whatever, but then you'll also just be like, you can't possibly understand this. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But then it's like, part oh, of that has to do... It. Well, part, because... But that's not... I have a rule book that tells me that thing. That's based on my education and my experience. And I'm passing that on to you, right? But... So... Yeah, it's it's very very important that that yeah, one person needs a teacher. I mean, the the I just heard a story from a friend of mine. He said that the Rebbe started saving over sichas, um, explaining chumash and Rashi, which is not like a normal thing. Like chumash and Rashi is taught to children. The Rebbe was teaching Chumash Rashi very, and the Rebbe told um, a, a Sanz or Chassid from Sanz is a Chassid group to tell his Rebbe that he was very happy to hear that the Sanz Rebbe also taught to his Chassidim Chumash Rashi in, in depth because he, the Rebbe felt uncomfortable doing something that wasn't a clear tradition for but he sees that it's also done in other groups that means there's a, there, there is a basis for this idea and that's something that the Rebbe is Learning Ruach HaKadosh, whatever, made sense to him. But on the other hand, like, where's the tradition? Where does this come from? It doesn't, if it's just, if it's just out of the blue. Um, so this is very, so yeah. This is, this is one of the reasons why Hasidim in general were very suspicious of, of people who are very isolated. People who spent all their time in their own room, figuring things all out all on their own. Didn't have mentors, didn't have friends. Something very suspicious about that. Good. All right. Have a wonderful Shabbos. I will see you next week.